Hi, this is Ethan Song in Annaline Dell, uh, Duke Plastic Story Residence with the Resident Review, a Plastic Story podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our leadership series with our own Dr. Marcus and Dr. Patel. Dr. Jeff Marcus is the Chief of the Division of Plastic, Maxillofacial, and Oral Surgery here at Duke University and specializes in pediatric plastic surgery and craniofacial surgery. Dr. Marcus has a wide range of achievements spanning the realm of plastic surgery. He's an innovator in product development, notably having developed a smart lock hybrid arch bar for maxillomandibular fixation in craniofacial surgery and has over 15 patents under his belt. He's the immediate past president of the Rhinoplasty Society and was recognized as one of the nation's top plastic surgeons in rhinoplasty in Newsweek in 2021. He is one of the program chairs for the Indie Aesthetic Surgery Summit, a national conference focused on distilling and delivering safe aesthetic surgery. Wolverine at heart, Dr. Marcus completed his undergraduate and medical degrees at the University of Michigan, plastic surgery residency at Northwestern University, and fellowship in pediatric plastic and craniofacial surgery at the University of Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. We also have Dr. Ash Patel, who's a professor of surgery at Duke University in the Division of Plastic, Maxillofacial, and Oral Surgery. Dr. Patel has served many roles within organized plastic surgery, including chair-elect of the ASPS annual meeting, PSTM, chair of the ACAPS DEI committee, and past chair of the ASPS Young Plastic Surgeon Steering Committee, to name a few. He's the former Chow Family Distinguished Professor of Plastic Surgery and Chief and Residency Director of the Division of Plastic Surgery at Albany Medical Center, before arriving at Duke. Currently, he serves on the editorial board and is section editor of Plastic Surgery Focus and Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, our flagship journal. A native of London, Dr. Patel received his medical degree at the University of Dundee, was a surgical trainee in the UK before completing his general surgery residency at Tufts University, and then a plastic surgery fellowship at Vanderbilt University. Thank you both very much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I just want to get started off by hearing a little bit about how you got started in leadership in plastic surgery. Uh, was this something that you had in a, as an ambition early on, in, on early on in your career, or was it more of a natural progression as you uh, kind of developed? Well, I, I'll, I guess I'll start. Um, I think generally for me, I guess uh, I would characterize myself, uh, and this has been true probably you know since high school, as a reluctant leader. Um, it's not necessarily something that I've always had my sights on and say, I have to be the, you know, I have to do this, this, and this, you got to check the boxes. It's just, I think that what happens is sometimes um, I see things that need to get done and um, I'm trying to look for a path forward to see that those things will happen. Um, and that's how I get myself into some of these situations. Um, and, you know, and as, as it's gone on along the way, I've been, I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I, like I said, it's uh, mostly been, um, you know, fortune and uh, fortune favors the prepared mind, that sort of scenario. Um, so for me, I think um, early in my career, um, there are a couple of senior colleagues that I had that were um, influential in, in encouraging me to, to get involved in, in organized plastic surgery. Um, but when I, when I think back about my life prior to becoming an attending, um, I realized that you know, I'd held a number of other leadership roles in, in school and medical school um, and, and even in residency. So, so it kind of seemed like a natural progression, even though it wasn't a intentional plan. 
Gotcha. Yeah. I think, you know, the other thing for me too, is that as, and then as these things started, as they were happening and I started to take, you know, to take on some of these roles, then I started to learn a little bit more, you know, of, 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 I became a student of leadership because I became really interested in it. Um, and I was fascinated and it allowed me to kind of figure out why I was tending, had the tendencies that I had. It helped to, it helped me to understand kind of myself a little bit better. And, you know, particularly, you know, the, you know, what was making me tick, you know, an emphasis on, learning more about like teamwork and how effective teams work together, which was basically what I was trying to do all along really was create uh, teams that work well together because that's the kind of team I wanted to be on. And that was my motivator was I was looking for that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because I I think I had a very similar experience um, and probably the most formative experience uh, with regard to, to making me realized this the science of leadership and teamwork was being a participant in um, the ASPS essentials of leadership course um, that was really the first time when when I realized that you that you need to to know a lot about yourself um, and really understand your colleagues to 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 become a good leader and become a good teammate first and and that was where I started to read a lot more about um, leadership and and started to develop my interest in in what really makes uh, a surgeon become an outstanding surgeon beyond the the clinical aspect. I had the same experience. Uh, that was one of the first formal programs I did too. Uh, the the uh, pathways, I guess, was the was the original name. Lynn Jeffers. We got to give her a shout out. Um, but same same experience. What an amazing program that was. I've heard really from across the country. A lot of people have done that uh, program through ASPS, and I've really enjoyed it. And it's something that I feel like we don't get a lot of training in. You know, as residents, we really just learn through example. We see leaders who we like the way they do things. We think they could do things differently. It's just more of role models, but to have an actual program that teaches the skills, because I feel like it is a skill set that I think is important. And one of the interesting things, also shout out to Dr. Lynn Jeffers, who was a uh, guest on our podcast, our very first podcast guest uh, for this segment. Um, so thank you so much for having uh, the time to talk to with us earlier. But um, I think one interesting thing that Dr. Marcus and Dr. Patel have brought up was they had become students of leadership. They wanted, they, they sought out the education, they sought out more training because as their careers progressed, they found that this was becoming more and more critical um, with running a very smooth division, a smooth practice, and also interacting with different teams. So it, it my next question for this is, you know, when did you realize that leadership was becoming more and more necessary within the field of plastic surgery, as we see all of these different development programs coming to bloom, not only at the organized plastic surgery level, but also medical school, too? It's really started to trickle down. So I, I think for me, um, when I went through that through that course, I realized that um, every plastic surgeon in some way is is a leader, whether it's in in the clinic setting um, or in their office, in the operating room. Um, and then for those of us in academic practice, there are a number of different situations that, you know, we may be involved in different committees in our organization, committees with, with our specialty organizations regionally or nationally, um, you know, and, and people who are residency directors um, and all the way up through, through division chiefs or department chairs, they, they all have leadership roles. Um, so, so for me personally, you know, being involved in, different plastic surgery organizations and being a, a committee chair, it became important to really uh, enhance my skills to, to become an effective leader of those groups to make sure that the work we were doing was going to be effective. 
um, and that we could engage the whole group so people, everyone could see value in being involved in that committee. And then obviously being being a residency director to try and ensure that that we could that I could lead that residency program in the best way possible. I think for me, you know, also like you know, take from the same jumping point in the in the uh, uh, in the in the pathways program. Um, I think one of the things I figured out not long after that was, um, and don't take it the wrong way, but um, it, as students, whether you know, beginning even in high school and then going to undergraduate experiences and a medical school, I think that one of the things that we all actually pretty much have in common is the fact that we've been somewhat, you know, self-focused for the majority of our life. We've been trying to get our grades. We've been trying to get, you know, we're goal-directed and self-focused. And I don't mean like selfish or self-interested. This is a different, it's, you know, trying to prepare ourselves for this goal, this idea, this concept for this thing that we want to do later in life, but it requires that we get you know, very, very top grades. We have to have be very engaged in all kinds of different sorts of activities. We make a lot of sacrifices. Many of those are sacrifices that involve our families, even from the very beginning, not being present at all of the, uh, at different things. And so it's a very solo sort of experience. And then when you graduate medical school and you go through the match and you start this uh, a residency program, you're now with 18, 17 other people. And they were all the same. They all were really smart. They all were focused on themselves. They all made it to this point. And now they say, work together. But no one ever told you how to work together. You know how to take care of yourself really well. But no one ever taught you how to be really super effective in a team. Think about it. Um, and that was sort of the impetus of our of the soft skills program that we started here. That was really mostly the reason. So that was that was one thing for me. And then the other one was, the fact that as I was starting to, you know, do become really active in leading different organizational things like change, particularly where change had to happen. Um, and of course, there's a science behind that. I didn't know. I followed instincts as best I had and turned out like some of some of the instincts I had were actually pretty good and pretty accurate. But then I actually started to read about it and learn more about it and read about like leading change and change management and this sort of stuff. And that's when I sort of realized I had one of those moments from like, uh, there's a line from The Wedding Singer where he says, uh, he says, that information would have been really useful to me if I had known that yesterday. So so it's interesting that you say that, Jeff, because, it, you know, as I've gone through this process over the last several years of continuing to to build skills and and become more and more self-aware of of my own qualities and 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 things I need to improve on. You kind of think back and reflect on your life experiences and and you know when you're young and you're going through different things, you don't really realize what what's happening. And I actually thought back to to my experience in the school that I went to. So I went to a you know a, a private school in England and I was doing lots of activities thinking like, okay, this is just the stuff that we do. And now I think back and say, you know, my experience of being a, a military cadet for several years from being you know in the house structure that we have in these formal schools and and the the groups that you're in again with everyone that's talented and then you become a leader within the house and the student leadership within each house actually builds leadership skills in you and you're a, when you're a teenager it's just that you don't realize that's what's happening and and those skills have helped carry me forwards as well because because there's already that experience uh, of being in those roles and then to build on a little bit what both of you were saying is you know, you each have the unique experience of serving as the program director and the chief of plastic surgery at different institutions. How has having both of these roles kind of influenced your leadership style? And do you see the roles as synergistic uh, or competing at times? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I think um, 
I think it's incredibly difficult to serve in, in both roles. You have to kind of have those two different hats and, and realize there are, uh, are very clear times when the goals may be competing. I think that for both roles, though, developing a strong and positive culture is really important. You know, the residents have their own kind of uh, culture and, and, and uh, environment around themselves. Um, and, and I think that's what makes it difficult to wear both hats, um, because when you're the division chief, you're more like the boss and it, you become a little less approachable at times from, from the resident perspective than if you're the program director. Um, you know, on a broader scale, though, I think that, you know, as we think about some of the things that we talked about, leadership and teamwork, communication, um, and to your point, Hannah, I think, you know, residency is a great time for us to be trying to train people in these in these skills to really be able to be to 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 excel as surgeons because residency is much more than than learning the patient care and medical knowledge competencies you know there's other four core competencies that are really important and i think the the most important to push someone's abilities that they're performing at or the level they're performing at up to the level of their potential so our soft skills curriculum we have here at duke is really tremendous uh, and i think going to be things like that are going to become essential components of residency training in the next several years. So, yeah, again, I think that it's a good, it's a really good question. And um, I agree with what, what Ash has said. I mean, it's difficult. Those two things are, there's competing sort of agendas. And so I really don't actually advise it, but there was a reason why I decided that I want, that I, that it was necessary to do it, even though I knew that there were going to be some potential problems or some pitfalls. And one and mine was the fact that there needed to be a, a very significant culture change, in my opinion, that was something that needed to happen from the beginning. And so this is now as of March, this will be, you know, is the end of my sixth year uh, in this position. And again, becoming having become more of a student of leadership and change in particular, because that was something I was really interested in, was change and studying that. And you know, one of the things that kind of dawned on me was that if I really, you know, if you want to change the culture in an entire group and you have two different groups, you have the permanent group, which is going to be your faculty and all of the staff and the APPs and so on, the people that are permanent and then the residents who, um, you know, come three in and three out on a on a particular, you know, on a given year. It, it dawned on me that it's actually going to be a lot easier to change culture working with the residents because they're going to be more flexible. They're more likely to buy in to concepts and particularly like one of the concepts that dealt with teamwork and the fact, you know, this idea in my mind that, a, you know, a team is a group of people where all of, where everyone, each one is indispensable and all of them are working with the same kind of, with the same goal. You need everybody, right? And so I thought the residents would buy into that, which they did, um, but it took a lot of effort. And then the fact that some are leaving as some come in. And so you can change within a six year period, basically, you can, you've just, you can change the entire character of the of the of the program in only six years just because if you're recruiting according to those sort of values then you're going to be you know continuously bringing those folks in and then the other thing i sort of counted on and hoped for was that the residents would apply pressure to the faculty to change and they do like residents are really good at this so um those were the things i thought about at the time and then it was it was intended to be self-limited so i only wanted to do it for as long as I thought it would be, you know, necessary. And then as soon as I thought I saw that things were kind of moving along, I hightailed and got out of there as fast <laughs> yeah. as I could. <laughs> I mean, those are they're both tough roles, but that's you know why we ask because I do feel like 
the residency you know, program agenda might not always align with you know the bigger overall picture. So I know a lot of smaller programs will have it be the same person, but I do think it's probably best to have it split. It's um, better for the residents. Right. Because like you were saying, Dr. Patel, you know, we probably feel more comfortable going to Dr. Phillips now with residency related issues. And, you know, Dr. Marcus is more of the umbrella, like big picture. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, I think that dovetails into a, a good question about, you're saying that there's all these different groups that you had to manage. And I, I think both of you had this experience where there's the residents, there's the admin staff, there's faculty, and then getting them under the same vision um, to like, undergo this process of change, which I would imagine is very difficult. You know, what is like the first thoughts that came to mind when developing this vision? And how did you guide all these different groups together to share that same vision when you're making these changes? So, uh, you know, that's an excellent question. I think um, in many industries and particularly in healthcare, we have these groups of people and we get this idea, okay, here's a division or here's a department, but things are very, very siloed. And you know, when things are siloed, the individuals in each one of those silos doesn't really understand what the other people are doing. And it becomes very, very difficult then to generate any meaningful change because there's this disconnect. Um, and oftentimes those disconnects can result in conflicts between those different groups. Um, so, I really like the idea. I, I wish I could remember the name of it. It's a military concept called teams of teams, um, where rather than having all these different silos, everyone really has to like rotate between these different teams. So in the military, these small groups of individuals can all understand all the different roles. Now, of course, in healthcare, we can't do that. We can't have nurses doing the same job as the surgeons and so forth. But I think we really have to pay attention to the fact that we need to understand what all these different multidisciplinary people in our in our team really do and what what we can do as surgeons to help make them more effective in the roles that they play rather than just assuming because we're the surgeons and 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 many times the, the kind of the the captains of the ship that we do know what everyone's role is so different kinds of um i think different types of change can be have to be handled in different ways i'm trying to answer your question in my example what i was talking about was more of it had more to do with culture change so it wasn't like we need to you know, change the profitability of the group and so on and so on. Because in that case, you're gonna come right out and say, you're gonna show the data, this is what we've got, this is what we need to do, this is you know, this is what long-term we wanna, you know, so forth. You, you, you're very upfront about that. Culture change is much harder and it's, it's different. You can't necessarily spell out what it is that you're trying to do while you're doing it. You can to a certain extent. In our case with the residents, it was, you know, I was pretty clear with them what, you know, like what we were trying to do because you had, sort of had to be, you know, you want, um, you're trying to, um, you know, improve the, the, you know, the conversation and the, the, you know, the dialogue, the communication between people, the difficult conversations, you know, things like gossip or this kind of stuff. You can be a little bit open with that, uh, with particularly with the residents, but it's not like you can come right out and say to everybody that I see these problems because it doesn't come off well, but you just plow ahead and start saying not, you don't talk, you don't talk about like, necessarily what you don't want you talk about what you do want and then the don't the don't want stuff kind of goes away a little bit um if you're really focused on on the positive things uh and you put a ton of emphasis on it make sure that it's valued make sure that it's always being talked about um and then it becomes just you know when when some of the negative kinds of things behaviors and things come up they become more like outliers and people kind of raise their eyebrows when they see it and it's no longer appropriate yeah 
I think that's what I've seen. I came in kind of right when this was kind of going on you know, four or five years ago and where gossip was an issue. There was a lot of, you know, talk about other people, other programs. And I think Dr. Marcus, you were pretty clear about this is not what we're going to be doing moving forward. And it, I have seen a shift where now if someone will gossip, it's like looked at in a different way than it used to be. So uh, to shift gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk about mentorship. So can you talk about some influential mentors in your careers? And then now as mentors, you know, what do you look for in a mentee? And how do you become an effective mentor? I think it's more than just being a role model. I know we've talked about this before, Dr. Patel, but can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, that's, um, I think it's a, a little bit of a difficult question because I think when we think about the traditional role of, of mentoring in surgery, there was always like one person that, that each trainee might go to. And I think the reason it's a difficult question is because one person can't really serve as the go-to person for every role. So I like to think of it instead of saying that everyone needs to have like their own individual board of directors, like a group of people they can go to for different things that as a collective will give them the right kind of advice to guide them forwards. Particularly as we think about diversity and 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 different people that we uh, are encouraging and want to have involved in surgical careers an individual might need to go to different people for different aspects of, of advice and guidance um, someone that they might have a particular affinity for or has a shared experience in, in one element might not be the same person they go to for for something else and then you have to think about the fact that when we we think about mentors in the past, the, the traditional kind of surgical mentor would fulfill the roles, multiple roles. They might fulfill the role of being a role model as well as a mentor and a coach and a sponsor. But really, these might be different individuals. Um, and as you go through your careers and you identify as a young surgeon that you have clinical interests and research interests and you know, maybe maybe some advice on leadership, you realize you need to expand the group of people that you're that you're going to. Maybe early in your career when you're a medical student, it might be one or two people, but but as you go through it, it kind of expands and, and you stay in touch with people. Um, so I think what you know what makes a good mentee is someone who can recognize the value in having mentors. Um, that they're willing to engage and be specific about what their needs are as a mentee and that they are willing to seek out the, the advice that they need from the right kind of people that they want to want to get that advice from. I mean, you know, an obvious example, uh, and I've said this to many of my past residents, is that, you know, being being a male surgeon, I can't possibly give you advice as a female surgeon as to what that's like. So, you have to find someone who is a female surgeon to to go to for specific advice about that. So I, I think that's really important to, to to think about. Well, I'm much more connected with my female side, so I'm <laughs> perfectly reasonable as a mentor. There, no, I totally uh, agree completely. You know, the 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 concept that there can't be one mentor that doesn't just not, I don't think that's how things work anymore. Maybe one day that was like that, but. Um, in fact, actually, you know, in our interview um, slides that I have a whole, that's one of the things I really, I, I, that I state like kind of outright, because I get asked that all the time, you know, you get, you get asked all the time in, in interviews, you know, what's your mentorship program? You know, how do you, you know, uh, do you assign a mentor? That is, I mean, it just, you know, like, it doesn't work really that way. Um, 
then, you know, as far as like, you know, you're asking, you know, people who were, you know, mentors in my life. I mean, I think one of the more, the, the most important ones I think I saw were, there were a couple people in general, um, and I'll mention one name, but, you know, there were, there were others too, but like uh, Ron Zucker at the University of Toronto, because I picked up at that point. Now, I was somebody who didn't, like I said, I didn't have a, a, a checklist of stuff in life that needed to happen where one of those check boxes was be the boss. That was not on the checklist at all, partly because of my perception as to what chiefs were like. Remember, keep in mind, this is 20 some years ago, 25 years ago. And, you know, in many instances, not all, you know, um, the chiefs were sort of everything in the program, like everything revolved around them, everything, you know, um, you know, it's, it was larger than life sort of a situation, uh, everything served them, you know, uh, it revolved around them all the time. And it just was so unappealing to me um, as on a, on a personal level. And sometimes, to be honest with you, in particular in, in general surgery, and this goes back, you know, you used to talk about, oh, that, you know, the programs are uh, malignant and you have like, you know, the leadership and it comes from the top down, you know, when people don't treat people well or they don't treat people nicely. Um, it happened that, you know, to me, it seemed like a lot of leaders were like that, you know, in surgery. And that was a bit of a turnoff. That, you know, and then I met Ron Zucker, who's the opposite. So you can actually lead people, be inspirational, and be really nice. And I was like, this is a light bulb just went off because he's about as successful as anybody. That was that was really kind of a big thing for me. Uh, Mike Bentz, another person like that. And then I guess just generally like my sort of view on this, you know, at least from my own particular style, there's a there's an author named Adam Grant. Actually, maybe before we finish, we can actually, two of us can maybe mention if there are some particular authors or books that we can suggest to people that happy to do that. This Adam Grant, though, one of his lines, not mine, is that, um, a, you know, a leader does not get the results. He or she supports the people who get the results. That's kind of important. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, to reflect on my my personal experience, I think as I, go, as I think back to my career, when I was, I think in medical school, I didn't really understand the value of really building that strong relationship and as a, as a young surgical trainee. But then when I was a general surgery resident, my general surgery program director, he really kind of made me think about a lot more about surgical education because that was one of his passions. You know, my chairman, uh, when I was a plastic surgery resident, program director, Bruce Shack, he was pretty influential because he was very much like the gentleman surgeon, everyone. Uh, you'd see him walking around. He was like the mayor of Vanderbilt. Like everyone knew who he was and everyone loved him. And then, then, then one of the one of the great things, and this is this is why I think it's 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 uh, fantastic to be involved in our in our national organizations is is I've been able to build up a, a network of surgeons who I, I never trained with, I never worked with, but I can pick up the phone and call for advice, and and you know they'll they'll give me give me their advice, and it's it's kind of kind of neat to have all these esteemed plastic surgeons that that are in my phone that I can just call and and they'll they'll give me honest and authentic. Uh, uh, input and feedback. That's definitely, it's a small world. Um, you know, as residents, we're lucky Duke supports us to get a lot of meetings. And I think that's probably one of the most valuable, you know, aspects is really networking and keeping in touch with you know, the residents or faculty from really all over the country. And I just wanted to highlight something Dr. Marcus said, because I think this is key for our listeners. And it's a theme that I've heard by talking to, you know, leaders from all over the country is this shift in mindset that you mentioned from being kind of self-focused to how can you make others better? And I imagine that's probably a different mindset to take is when you reach a certain point in your career 
it's less about, you know, what more can I do, but how can I build the team and how can I support others? Was that something you consciously had to like think about and change or did that come naturally to be more outward or other focused? I think uh, both, both purposeful, but also um, accidental. And because I stumbled upon, you know, the, some of these, the things that, you know, that sometimes that, that turned me off sometimes about what, you know, what being a leader might be like, and then what's actually, what actually works best anyway. The fact of the matter is, is that if you surround yourself with people who, who get the job done, who are excellent and who are themselves, you know, um, leaders as well, and, you know, really taking care of business and, uh, you know, sh showing the organization off, you know, being out, you know, out there doing great things, the more that other people do around me, the easier my job is. That's the thing that got me is that if every, if I, if I, if I'm surrounded with all, with, with a lot of really effective people, then it's not all on me to do everything. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a really um, uh, important thing to think about because your mindset or focus often has to change at different stages of your career. And, you know, particularly for, for plastic surgeons, you know, the first few years of your career um, uh, can be very stressful because you're, you're going through the board certification process, trying to become, a, you know, uh, develop your clinical expertise for people who are in academics trying to develop a, a research you know a portfolio and a plan maybe get grant funding and you 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 have to be a little bit self-focused at that time it's hard to to say you're going to have a, a broader impact but but that's what's nice about being in a, in a in a team where other people can be achieving that impact um on a greater scale with the people around them and having someone who's who's a, who's a good leader and people who you can go to as uh, mentors can help you with that whole process. I think one of the other things quickly we didn't we didn't really talk about because we talked about the benefit of of mentoring to the mentee, but I think being a mentor is tremendously rewarding, and you actually learn a lot about yourself and about other people as you as you mentor different different people, um, and that I think is kind of under underappreciated by many people. Couldn't couldn't agree more. There's nothing. I, you know, I, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of a couple of people, but like you know. Somebody who just, you know, who I was worried about, you know, at a, at a period of time and who just completely at some point flipped a switch and just became like a, like an incredible person. And like, and you, you to watch somebody actually do this and become something great. Um, it's really, really great. It's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I, I think there was so many good points that we had talked about. Um, one thing was Dr. Patel mentoring, having like a board of directors almost, um, Many different mentors and Dr. Marcus had talked about this too. You know, every person has different skills that they can offer and teach. And it's great to have that group of people or like a tribe of mentors, um, just quoting Tim Ferriss, one of the, the self-help gurus out there, um, that it, it's it's very advantageous and not to just to stick with one person because the offering may be limited and you could really have like um, a really broader view having multiple people. Um, and that's something that I found in my training as well, just through medical school undergrad. Um, and another thing too is relationship management. I think you guys were mentor talking about one thing is like knowing yourself and then how you interact with people and then knowing how you can influence um, in, in that sense. And I think that boils down to one theme, which is emotional intelligence. And that's one thing that we are focusing on within our soft skills curriculum, having the emotional intelligence, understanding yourself, understanding others, building those relationships. So I wanted to transition into talking more about that and how that has impacted the way you lead 
and uh, how you found that to be successful. If you could share any sort of stories uh, of that, that'd be great as well. Um, you're a great question. So I think you know emotional intelligence is is really an important uh, attribute um, in what we do in surgery, particularly in plastic surgery. I think it it kind of leads to people who people who are who have high EI are going to be more humanistic. They're going to be better at teamwork. Are going to be um, more able to work in diverse teams and appreciate other people's perspectives. Um, There's so many things. I think it's like a really critical skill. And I'm a believer that whilst everyone has some innate level of, of emotional intelligence, you can really enhance it if you're deliberate about it. Uh, you know, there's different components that, that go into EI. We could talk about EI for, for like a whole hour, but but really part of that whole process of, of improving your own emotional intelligence is really becoming more self-aware about yourself. And, and that's actually really hard. I, I, I always talk to people and say, it takes a lot of courage to be honest about who you are or what you are, because you're going to learn things about yourself that you might not necessarily like. But then you, once you go through that process and you, and you move past that discomfort, you can actually start to improve on yourself. And as you do that, you're going to find that all of your relationships get better. Um, you're able to, to become much more effective in everything that you do. You know, I think that we talk a lot about stress uh, of, of, as being a surgeon. You know, wellness is a, is a big focus. And I think people who have a higher emotional intelligence, much more able to handle stress. There's some literature out there already, and you know, particularly for general surgery residents, that shows that residents who have a high EI are much less likely to feel burnout and have a higher sense of professional fulfillment. So, so I think it's it should be a um, a process that we we could even focus on in the in the undergraduate medical education curriculum to really try and think about a more longitudinal improvement in in any physician any specialties you know, kind of career path, but particularly, I think, in surgery because of the stress that we have. Yeah, I also, you know, again, agree. Um, it's set, it's, a, it's a topic we can go on this one for for really, really long time and and still not scratch it. Um, and it's definitely one of those things that's worth reading about, learning about. I look at it similar in some ways to like uh, to technical skill for surgeons. There are some people, the fact of the matter is there are some people who are just natural. They're absolutely just gifted, truly gifted. And then there are some people, you know, that who are less gifted and people have their anything in between. And then coaching is what moves people along the continuum from, you know, the one side to another. But um, it does sometimes depend to some extent on where their starting point is. And you want to just basically with any particular person, try to max out with coaching to get them to be the best, that they, you know, best place, the best that they can be. And I think emotional intelligence is like this too. There's some people who are on a very, very high end, and then there's some people who are very kind of on a low end, and then they can be coachable in between, but the coaching sometimes has to come from within, which is a little bit of a difference, unless they are astute enough to at some point figure out that maybe they ought to have a therapist, which is probably a good idea. I'm a big fan, by the way. I think therapy is awesome because it, it, it's, a very, it's a fast track for, for, for people to improve their emotional intelligence by learning about themselves and then trying to look at the way they interact with other people and try to improve the way they interact with other people if if they can, if they're interested or want to. But yeah, I think it's extremely important in um, on a, you know, on a high functioning team. And it doesn't mean you can't have somebody who's a little bit lower, but they at least have to be trying. Be aware, which is probably the hardest step, really. 
Uh, I have kind of a maybe a difficult question for both of you. You've mentioned the sacrifice that it takes to be a leader and to be involved not only your your own institution but nationally. And I'm wondering what say bluntly, what do you get out of it? Like why do you do it? What personally do you um gain from from the sacrifice? For me, I think one of the key aspects of, of being involved in in our organizations in our specialty is really the citizenship um i i think it's a tremendous privilege to be a plastic surgeon i think we have obviously i'm biased but we have the best specialty in medicine and many people who want to become plastic surgeons can't become plastic surgeons so i think contributing to our specialty in even in a small way is really an important way of of kind of giving it forwards to make sure that the, the specialty keeps progressing um we could again enter into a long discussion about what we think are the threats to plastic surgery and and where the specialty might be 50 years from now because it's obviously evolved tremendously over the last century but but it's it's that kind of idea that we always need to be uh, adapting and moving forwards that 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 drives us on and keeps us keeps us at the cutting edge of of medicine um and so being involved i think is really important to that um, I just kind of I'll go back to kind of where I was in the beginning, as I said at the beginning, somewhat of a, a, a reluctant leader is my is sort of this the MO. So to and now I've and also what we just said, I mean, getting to know yourself more, which now I do know, I, I kind of understand myself now I realize that I am that. And I also realize that I'm not necessarily looking to, um, you know, become the president of everything and, you know, lead every organization. It's just not it's just not really in my interest. I'm not getting I don't get anything. Your question is, what do you get out of it? I don't get a whole lot out of that, really, to be honest with you. Um, I don't get a ton out of like just you know hearing my own voice. And but what I do really like is, um, and I and of course I love you know I have my own personal why as to why I'm in this specialty and why I love the specialty. But what I really really like is trying to help other people do well, like the faculty and the residents. I like to see people have success, and I like to see them in, enjoy what they're doing while they're doing it and be excited about being, you know, a part of something. So the biggest, I think the biggest, um, you know, things I get are seeing somebody be successful, getting into like from resident, getting into that, getting into a top fellowship, getting into getting a great job and, and, and earning it too, not just being, being given, earning it. Right. And then a faculty, you know, who's going to get promoted or who's going to become, um, you know, successful in what, in their own definition of what that, should look like whether you know maybe for them in the societies and the things like that that's really fun so it sounds like there is i think you guys both talked on very similar wavelengths of being within part of a community right being within the program itself watching people improve and develop and find success but also being a citizen of a larger group you know having your own duty and then acting um to what you find is like according um so dr patel you definitely have been very active and Dr. Marcus as well in, in larger organizations serving in a lot of leadership positions. Um, so how did you get involved in all of that part, Dr. Patel, and also Dr. Marcus too? Hey, Ethan, could I just, I just want to say one thing real quick because it kind of gets back to what we we're saying before. I, I was talking about like, um, you know, being surrounded by people um, who are, who are successful and that makes everybody better. You can already hear we're different. Uh, Dr. Patel has been a chief for a long time. So, you know, here we have two people who are, who are both who are both chiefs, but um, have different perspectives on it. Mm -hmm. And how fortunate am I to have a person who's so nationally recognizable doing all these things that I would actually prefer not to do. 
that's that's what makes a strong team yeah you know so so um i think this goes back a little bit to to my comment earlier about um having people who are role models and, and mentors and sponsors and i think when i um when I was in residency, I, I you know, health policy, um, that wasn't even on my radar. I don't think I even really understood any of it, let alone, you know, insurance processes and some of the things to do with disparities. I mean, there's the there's the things that you kind of learn that there are these healthcare disparities, but what does that all really mean? Um, and of course, you know, I was in, in residency, um, you know, 13 more years ago. Um, so so things have obviously progressed and evolved since then, but I was fortunate when I when I first went into practice that um, I had a couple of great role models from the health policy and advocacy side, you know, Malcolm Roth and Jim Hain, who gave me a lot of advice. And and um, you know, Malcolm in particular, he was the ASPS president at that, that time, my first year in practice. And so he was the one who sponsored me to say, hey, you should get involved and encourage me as well, get involved in YPS. And that was really my first foot in the in the water of organized plastic surgery. Um, which allowed, which kind of opened my eyes actually as to what as to what that organization does and and, and what do our organizations really do? Because I think when you're on the outside, if you're not involved, it's it's really kind of nebulous. You have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. And when you are when you do get involved, you realize wow, there's a tremendous amount of work that 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 is being done by all of these different groups, no matter what organization it is, to to kind of shape the the direction of of what what your specialty involves. So. So that was really important. And I, and I think, you know, as far as like some of the interest in health policy goes, I think that stemmed from the day-to-day -day realization that whilst we train to be a surgeon and our goal is to, to try and help all these patients, some of the systems and the structure around us seems to work against that goal. So, you know, how could we address issues that, that limit how well we can take care of patients, whether that's access to care or some of the other disparities that we see? I'll be honest, I don't remember the question, but I'm going to go with an answer to, I'm going to go with an answer to a question that I'll make up. No, um, one, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll share just about like, you know, um, the incentive to try to become a leader and um, uh, one would be, I guess, and this would be advice to people who are thinking about doing these things. And we talked about, you know, where, you know, careers start and, you know, developing a career and, you know, getting your know, research and developing your, whatever it happens to be, your interests, your skills, getting your clinical programs and all of those things going my suggestion is that it's better for an organization to have somebody um, who's uh, done with, not done done, but like feels comfortable in their own shoes so that they can then give themselves to everybody else because that's what leaders are supposed to do. It's supposed to be sacrificial. That's kind of the point. So if someone's not ready to, you know, make personal sacrifice for help for, to help others to achieve what they need to achieve, then they're not ready. Um, that's a good, that's one, one point. And then the other one, like it's, I think, had to do with you know, just kind of how it started was, I think, one circumstance for me. It was very, very early on where there was a leadership vacuum, basically, in the children's hospital at Duke, where a lot of folks had left. And um, at my at that point, I was like, I wondered what should I be looking around. And so I actually made an appointment to meet with the president of the hospital because I sensed that if things didn't change, that that might have to happen. And I had never, I always envisioned, or my goal was always to like continue working in the same place. And I wanted to stay in the same place um, to take care, you know, taking care of kids. I want to watch them grow up. That would be ideal. And so I actually met with them and I said something to that effect and said, you know, I see that, you know, this things are coming apart here and I don't see where the leadership's going to come from. And 
um, he said, well, why don't you do it? And I just laughed. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I have zero gray hair. I don't. And, and the guy was totally serious and, um, you know, ended up you know, becoming one of the, that was one of the first leadership. That was the first leadership position I ever really had. It turned out to be really, really difficult. Um, and I learned a ton um, in doing it, making mistakes too along the way. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, how that kind of came about. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, we'll end with um, some books, some ideas that you have for our listeners of, you know, we've learned a lot just from listening to two you know, very different leaders and leadership styles. But if you could share with the listeners, you know, where should we go from here? Um, oh, yeah. Um, so I, I Dr. Marcus and I talk about this all the time, um, and actually, along along with one of our other faculty members, Alexandra Laurie, we we you know we we have lots of books that we kind of talk about. So I think there's one book. If I could if I could name the first book, everyone who's interested in in leadership needs to read. Um, you know, it's it's almost 100 years old now. It's how to how to win friends and influence people by Dale, <laughs> Dale Carnegie. <laughs> That's a real classic. And of course, it's a book about sales. But I think what it really is about is how to engage with people, how to treat other people, how to be sincere. So I think that's really important. Um, and as you as you go along, there's another book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's really great um, at, at trying to learn a little bit more about yourself and the things that you can improve on. Um, one of my personal favorites, um, and I won't give the full title um, because um, it's not it's not PG-13, but it's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F yeah. uh, by, by Mark Manson. That's a really great book um, about um, learning how to prioritize and how to not um, uh, get you know, beaten down in a way by things that you can't control. And on the non-self-help book, one of my favorite fiction books to read, um, which which in many ways gets you thinking is the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. That's hilarious. I just I I just downloaded that. Yeah, it's amazing because it's really about strategy and long term planning, um, and how you know one adverse event can't derail you from future future kind of goals. That's weird. I literally just downloaded that. Amazing it's a long book. book. It's a long book, but it's an amazing book. Amazing story. Yeah. Great minds read alike. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess you know for me. Um, there's some people that, so one I mentioned earlier, you know, as far as like, you know, I, I, I particularly got, was very interested in, uh, in change and change management. And there's an author named John Cotter, who was a uh, Harvard professor, Harvard Business Review writer, and has a great book called Leading Change, everybody refers to, which I think is like the blueprint for making something change. I love it. But like on a motivational level, uh, a couple of people that I like a lot, Simon Sinek is my probably my favorite, um, just because I like his kind of emotional style and he's sort of irreverent and um, self somewhat self-effacing at times, but also has just these brilliant ideas. Um, it's one of his one of his is called Start with Why. I love that book. And then another one he has is called The Infinite Game, uh, which I've listened. I, I, I like listening to his voice because he's the way he's uh, he intonates. Um, I've listened to that one twice. And he sounds exactly like my fellowship director, Chris Forrest. He said they sounded identical. And then Adam Grant, who uh, is another, he's a professor of psychology at Penn, who's beloved and who's written a book called Give and Take. And then um, they're kind of long, uh, uh, very like a lot of research, a lot of more data and research driven, less emotion, but very, very valuable. And, and they both have great podcasts. Um, and so they're people like you guys, you know, that you can listen to. Um, Simon Sinek does a lot of interviews and that I particularly like because he brings in a lot of really interesting people. 
That's incredible. And um, I guess since Dr. Marcus, you had um, shared one of uh, Adam Grant's quotes, I think it'd just be fair to talk about, A, what are some of your favorite quotes, some things that you guys live by, maybe creeds, or if you had like a billboard, a big billboard on the highway and it said something, you know, what would you put up there? Oh boy. Oh boy. It's the, I was, wasn't expecting to. This to wasn't, a, yeah, this wasn't done that. That okay. wasn't on the notes. The, the So it's kind of, it's kind of funny that you say that because um, I, you know, my office is currently torn apart while they're putting some furniture in. And I, I had a bunch of quotes that I had up on a pin board in my, in my previous office. Um, and, and one of them, I wish I could remember who said it. I think, I feel like it was, it was Calvin Coolidge and it's to do with, uh, persistent being like an important trait, you know, and that the world is full of talented degenerates who, who, who did, essentially gave up on it, but it's a really, uh, I think a really nice quote to, to keep thinking about, you know, trying hard and keep pushing despite any adversity. Wow. That one's, that one's, uh, uh, there's a couple, I guess, uh, look, I had to look them up by the way, cause you got to my, my vice price. So when it comes to, I know we weren't, we were going to get into some of the, um, you know, um, uh, intellectual property, this kind of stuff, but which would definitely, that's a whole separate thing, but there's a couple, one, you know, one was the complexity is not the mother invention. There's money in the mundane as well. So that would argue that simple ideas are actually also, um, very valuable. Let's see, um, creative people at their core believe that there's always an answer. That's um, that speaks to to plastic surgery. And for the audience, Dr. Marcus has a whole list of quotes. Yeah, I have a few. I keep a few of these. Um, <laughs> there's a um, there's an Obama quote: "Be a workout horse, not a show horse." Enthusiasm overshadows deficiencies. Um, that's help helpful. Our background and our circumstances may influence who we are, but um, only we are responsible for who we become. So means it's on. It's, it's on you to become your best you. Um, and then I don't remember this one, but it, there's, I can't remember who said it. It's just someone, it, it might've been like a meme or something. It's life is tough, get a helmet. <laughs> well, thank you again both so much for, for joining us today. We will continue our leadership series um, soon. Yeah, all right. Thank you both. Thank you.